Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Nick, for, for having me, for bringing me in for this uh, lecture, and uh, thanks for you to uh, be here. So my talk will have uh, five parts after the introduction. We're in the introduction right now. Part one is uh, called What is Illusionism? So I will tell you what the talk is about in a certain sense in uh, part uh, one. In part two, I will tell you what the difference is between fiction and reality. You might have wondered uh, what is the difference and how can we tell. Part uh, three then uh, offers an improved version of something which comes dangerously close to illusionism, but I try to reject it, but I will come dangerously close. Then in part four, I will tell you what the truth is. Uh, I call that uh, mental realism. And uh, we'll introduce at least one German term, Geist. I will tell you what that is. It's less spooky than you might think. And then at the end, in part five, I will argue that illusionism is a form of delusion. So the only illusion in the room will be at the end uh, of my talk, illusionism itself. Okay? The illusion that we are uh, an illusion. So that's going to be uh, a, a quite an interesting illusion, which could be studied uh, by psychologists. So you will see that I happen to believe that many philosophers uh, suffer from Kota syndrome, for those who know this vocabulary. But, um, uh, but psychologists know better how to diagnose it, so that's, this is going to be a speculative uh, hypothesis. So now let's start. Part one, what is illusionism. So you might think, so let me give you an intuitive uh, uh, take on the issue and then I will uh, be a little bit more precise and uh, philosophical about it. But you might think um, that <clears throat> consciousness or your sense of self, say, okay, I will be more precise about how I use these terms and what we are talking about, is a form of illusion. Right? I mean, you might have heard that uh, both Buddhists and David Hume think that the self is an illusion. Uh, you have no self. You're a bundle of uh, impressions. And uh, if you look into your mental life, you will find all sorts of ideas and uh, states pop up, feelings, etc. Right? But what you will not find among those impressions is you. Okay? So you will feel your body, right? you will see certain colors and shapes, you will hear certain sounds and smell certain things, and there will be an overall right, impression of what it's like to be you right now. Right? But among all those impressions, there's not going to be you. Right? So you are absent from yourself in a certain sense. And that is the flavor uh, of uh, illusionism. Uh, now let's be a little bit more precise. So most, most specifically, illusionism is a view defended most prominently by the philosopher Daniel Dennett, uh, the philosophical uh, propaganda minister of Richard Dawkins. And, uh, 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 and, uh, and I will be attacking the propaganda minister, not the Reich Kanzler. And, uh, uh, and the propaganda minister uh, uh, has now uh, a new person helping him uh, by the name of Keith Frankish, uh, a professor at the Open University. And he published uh, a, a very widely read paper called Illusionism as a Theory of Consciousness. And Dennett, ha Dennett has endorsed the paper and he says, it's the, by now it should be the, quote, obvious default theory of consciousness. So here's what they think the obvious default theory is. Let me give you the definition, and then I will explain how the definition works and refute it. Okay, so here's the view, not the definition. So here's the definition. Illusionism, quote, is the view that phenomenal consciousness, as usually conceived, is illusory. 
According to illusionists, our sense that it's like something to undergo conscious experiences is due to the fact that we systematically misrepresent, misrepresent them, or in some versions, their objects, as having phenomenal properties. So this is all philosophical technical jargon. Here's the idea. Okay, so by, when philosophers say phenomenal consciousness, they mean what, is it, what it's like to be you right now. Okay, so the kinds of feelings that you have uh, and the kinds of sensory impressions uh, uh, that you undergo, right? Colors, sounds, smells, etc. That is called phenomenal consciousness as opposed to intentional consciousness. Intentional consciousness is the fact that some of your states represent something that isn't you. So if I think about London, yeah, then London is not one of my states. London is a city, right? London isn't in me. It doesn't make sense to think of London as being in me. It's just too big, right? So uh, my intentional perceptual consciousness is of you right now, and that there's no sense in which you are, say, here because you're there, right? So intentional consciousness, in a certain sense, uh, is much harder to reduce to a state of mind, say, to a brain state, uh, because if I see you and you're bigger than my brain, then it would be odd to think that you are in my brain. That's, that's a very nonsensical view. So intentional consciousness differs from phenomenal consciousness in that it's at least not utterly implausible to think that colors are somehow in me. Okay? It's not utterly implausible. It happens to be false, I think, but it's not implausible. And if you think that colors are in you, so you might think out there is electromagnetic radiation. Electromagnetic radiation interacts with your nerve endings and then, say, your photoreceptors, and then a complex cascade of causal processes happens, which no one really fully understands because neuroscience is only in its beginnings. We can, you know, with our best technology, understand the synchronized firing of about 1,000 neurons over a bunch of milliseconds, so that's, that doesn't give us a lot of detailed knowledge, so currently the resolution of neuroscientific uh, uh, mechanisms of uh, ima you know, brain imaging and so forth is, just isn't much better than uh, what I told you. But be that as it may, you might think there's electromagnetic radiation all, out there uh, hitting nerve endings, process, 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 and then say the visual cortex turns reality into like a colorful experience, etc. right? So, uh, but there really isn't any color out there, okay? So this would be an illusionist view about color. And we will see that illusionists uh, go much farther than this. They don't think that colors are illusions in that sense of illusion. They think consciousness is an illusion. So they think the idea that you have color consciousness is the illusion. Not the colors are illusions. There aren't any colors. Not really. Okay? So that's really the view. Uh, they have no mental life. Or at least they think they have no mental life. Um, now, as they try to articulate the view, they run into certain problems. For instance, Keith Rankish in this paper contradicts himself. Uh, I counted uh, four times uh, uh, on uh, two pages, so that's, that's a bad record. It usually takes Dennett about 30 pages to contradict himself, and uh, 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 Rankish uh, can do it in three pages. Let me just give you proof for this. Okay, on page 12 of the paper, he says in the main text, illusions themselves are real and may have considerable power. Okay, so we hear illusions are real. 
We don't really know yet what an illusion is at this stage of the paper. It's the second page of the paper. And we read they are real. Okay, illusions are real. In the sense, for instance, in which even if God doesn't exist, then the illusion that God exists can be real and powerful, right? So people might act on the assumption that there is a God, even though there is no God, then the illusion would be powerful. That's the model here. So illusions are real. Uh, but then on the same page, a footnote, not to the sentence, to a sentence to another paragraph, tells us, I quote, when I talk of phenomenal properties not being real or not existing, I mean that they're not instantiated in our world. Okay, now we hear they, do, they are not real. So in the main body, we hear, we hear they are real, and then we have a footnote which says they are not real. They are not instantiated in our world. Okay, well, if they're not real, if conscious experiences are not real, then what is real? Well, and then we read... Um, just ask, I quote, our established scientific worldview. So our established scientific worldview tells us what is real. Now, what does our uh, scientific worldview tell us? Let me tell you what he thinks it tells us, that there really are only, quote, properties that are either identical with or realized in microphysical properties. Okay, so uh, reality is either microphysical properties or realized in microphysical properties. But he adds at the same time that quantum mechanical processes are exotic. So it's not quantum mechanics because that's too exotic. But what are microphysical properties if not those, for instance, uh, studied by quantum mechanics? So that's an additional problem. He doesn't like quantum mechanics. He likes microphysical properties, but, uh, but he's not a big fan of uh, quantum mechanics. That's a bad combination of views and has clearly nothing to do with our uh, established scientific worldview. Remarkably, uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons why they screen themselves off from quantum mechanics, there are many reasons, is that, for instance, quantum mechanicists uh, such as you know, no lesser figure than Schrödinger hold just the opposite view. Right? Schrödinger, in his nice little books, uh, Mind and uh, Matter, uh, argues that uh, matter isn't real and only mind is real. Whereas these people are trying to say uh, uh, only matter is real and mind isn't real. So th this, doesn't, you know, this doesn't square with at least what Heisenberg and Schrödinger and many others, Eugene Wigner, etc., if you look at uh, the history of quantum mechanics, then remarkably most quantum physicists will tell you that consciousness is quite real. It might even be the only real thing. Right? Uh, uh, which says that if you understand quantum mechanics, and arguably Schrödinger has had some ideas about how this damn thing works, right? and he didn't think it was exotic, he was Schrödinger, right? so uh, uh, understanding quantum mechanics is quite compatible with the opposite of their view. That's why they're avoiding quantum mechanics and, uh, and instead uh, postulate microphysical properties, right? Without telling us what they are, microphysical properties. So somehow they must have the idea, uh, you know, the good old Hobbesian idea defended by Thomas Hobbes that they're like tiny little uh, things, you know, little balls, you know, and they, uh, they stand and push and pull relations to each other and that's reality and the rest is a kind of illusion. But that is an illusion. Okay, so uh, uh, that is already a pretty bad uh, problem. Now, but let's buy all of that, right? And to continue reading the paper before we become more precise um, uh, in order to understand what it might mean to say that consciousness is an illusion. And there are exactly, I counted them, six, well, depending on how you count seven, but I think six uh, uh, proposals by illusionists what it would mean to say that consciousness is an illusion. Okay, so here are the six ones. They're all quite interesting and funny and uh, very incoherent. That's why I'm giving you all six of them. Okay, so number one, that's a very prominent idea, the interface 
uh, analogy. So according to that idea, consciousness uh, is like the user illusion of someone who you know, uses their desktop computer interface and thinks that there really are files on the computer, right? The icons, there's an icon, right? It, uh, uh, it jumps around and it tells you download something. And you might think, right, that there's a little icon on the desktop, right? But the icon is in the eye of the beholder, right? There, there, there is electromagnetic radiation uh, uh, in the computer, which with magnets, etc., right, uh, uh, and chips and so forth, is structured in a certain way. But the idea that, uh, uh, that there are icons is, of course, an illusion. So if you, if you look into the computer, into the hardware, you won't find an icon. Right? The icon, that's the idea, is a kind of user illusion. Now, their idea is that subjectivity, being a consciously acting self, is a kind of user illusion of your organism. So your organism is really like a computer hardware. It's doing all sorts of things, a very complex you know, data processing mechanism, gene editing and copying into the future, right? Uh, uh, data transmission in, in the nervous system, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like a very complicated bunch of processes uh, which no one fully understands, right? We don't even know how many types of cells are in a human organism. We have good estimates, and AI uh, is currently, machine learning techniques are trying to help us to come up with better numbers. Uh, and we don't know how many, no one knows how many cells my organism has right now. And by the way, it happens to be uh, currently impossible for you to answer that question, right? For, uh, um, so you can give estimates, but you don't really know. And now the idea is that your sense of self, and in particular your conscious experience, is a user illusion of your organism. Now, if your sense of self or your conscious experience is a user illusion of your organism, in what sense is it an illusion? Right? So if I give you a real illusion, like a visual illusion, uh, um, it's an illusion for you. Right? You can make a mistake. If I, if, I, you know, if I play a magical trick, you can make a mistake. Uh, but that just means that you and your conscious experience exist. Without conscious experience, you can't have an illusion. An illusion is precisely what you can have if you are a conscious agent. But that means that it's just a nonsensical idea to think that the conscious agent is an illusion. Illusions are something from which conscious agents can suffer, but it's nothing that conscious agents can be. Okay? So uh, the user illusion functions in this case because there are two systems, the computer and me. And you might think that I'm under illusions when it comes to the soft and hardware of this machine because I don't know how it works, right? Uh, so it's much easier for me to deal with the computer, uh, 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 you know, without knowing how it really works precisely because there's this element of illusion, right? I don't need to know how this thing works uh, uh, when I more or less competently use it. Yeah. But there are two systems here. And in this model, there's just one system. So that doesn't quite work. So uh, uh, second uh, thesis, uh, projection. Okay, so uh, consciousness is a projection in the following sense. I think that you are someone, right? Why do I think that you are someone and not just say a, a pack of neurons or a pack of cells? Why do, why do I think you are someone in addition to a pack of cells, right? Well, so their idea goes, because I see more or less stable behavior in you, right? You're all sitting and listening. That's stable behavior. And now I postulate that you are someone who's sitting and listening. So that's a hypothesis. But that hypothesis, according to them, is strictly speaking false. There's no one here listening. 
It looks to me as you are listening because this is just a helpful explanation, right? It's just a helpful simplification of what's really going on. Yeah? Now, that would be a kind of illusion. I'm projecting the idea that someone is here onto that scene. Well, problem, if I'm doing that, yeah, then I exist. How would it be possible for me to project stable behavior onto you if I didn't so much as exist? How does this work? Right? I can make hypotheses about you, but only if I exist. So the, uh, uh, that idea is also incoherent. It's usually uh, um, somewhat repaired. So there's a repair strategy by saying, well, you do this to me too. Right? I project a stable self onto you. You project a stable self onto me. Now we have human society, right? or family for that matter. And uh, in this way, we continue right, our illusion. Right? So mother tells you you are someone. You think mother is someone. Uh, and therefore, everyone in the family thinks that everyone else in the family is someone, but really, no one is anyone, right? So uh, uh, that's a common view held, for instance, by the German Dennett, uh, uh, Thomas Metzinger. He wrote a book, Being No One. And I always say, I wish. I wish he were no one, because then he couldn't have, then the book wouldn't exist. But um, uh, he wrote the book. And it has the title, Being No One. So, and he's also a Buddhist now. Uh, um, uh, he's actually, um, you know, uh, he used to be Catholic and now he's a Buddhist and so forth. But, uh, okay. Now, but that's, that's that idea. Okay. Also not a, you see, it's not a very stable view. Uh, um, how, how, do you boot, how do you boot the system? How do you boot the social interaction between two people who are not there? Right? How do they do this? Uh, so, uh, 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 and they don't say much more about this. Okay, so uh, hypothesis three, probably the most ridiculous one, called Ipsundrum. Okay, the, the name for the hypothesis itself tells you that something's wrong. Okay, and, uh, and according to this hypothesis, uh, defended by the psychologist Nicholas Humphrey, consciousness is, I quote, not a very helpful thing to say, a fiction of the impossible. Okay, so no now I know what's going on, consciousness is a fiction of the impossible. Now that's not very helpful, but... Keith Frankish has a translation for this nonsensical phrase, right? A fiction of the impossible is, to put it mildly, uh, nonsense. But here's, uh, uh, here's a way of cashing this out. It's, I quote, a magic trick played by the brain on itself. Ah, now we know what's going on. A magic trick played by... But how does the brain do this? Huh? So, uh, uh, for, uh, so another problem, what's the brain? Um, actually, we don't know. It's not the case that we all know what the brain is. We can, you know, what are they referring to? Probably the cerebrum, not the cerebellum. They're clearly not talking about the entire nervous system. But we haven't figured out the brain. It's not like, yeah, the brain, that's that thing, right? We know more about the heart. In a certain sense, we can say it's not fully, it's not entirely false to say the heart is the, the organ which pumps blood, right? But you can say something similar about the brain. The brain is the organ which and now fill it in, because we don't know. The brain does various things, right? So, um, uh, so and, and we don't know all of them. It's not that we have deciphered the brain. It's not a clearly delineated object of scientific knowledge, the brain. It's a big word, the brain. But let's say it's the cerebrum, so it's part of the nervous system. It's roughly the kind of thing you find when you open someone's skull, say, right? That's not a very good description, but the mushy thing, right? And uh, now, how does this thing play a magic trick on itself? How does it do it? Right? So that, that is just a metaphor, you see. The, the brain plays a magic trick on itself, right? How does it do it? Yeah. So that's no good. 
then there's the secondary quality, and I will drop that. And uh, and and you know, but, but they cash out the magic analogy. So uh, so here's a proposal, right? They say, oh no, no, the idea that you have conscious experience is like the following quote: the experience of a child in a dark cinema who takes the cartoon creatures on screen to be real. Okay. Now, uh, but that would mean that I'm in a dark cinema, right, uh, under my skull, uh, and there's a show. Right? And I take the, the cartoon figures to be real. This is uh, what I call the Dalek model, if you watch Doctor Who. Uh, so they are these creatures, they are really, you know, they are robots, they have a mechanical, uh, they are like killer robots, uh, but there's a nervous tissue in them. And uh, there's a beautiful episode in, I, I think it's season nine, I don't recall quite exactly, where, um, uh, where, where someone enters one of the Daleks. The episode is called Enter the Dalek. And um, the doctor actually enters the Dalek, I think. And then within the Dalek, uh, there, there really is a screen and, and, and an eye. And so the Daleks see the external reality on the screen in the Dalek, right? So in that case, if we were Daleks, you might say, okay, there, there literally is a dark cinema with a screen and the Dalek takes that to be real, right? However, where's the Dalek in your brain? Right? There's, it's not like there's a center in your brain, which happens to be you. There's no, you know, there's no humunculus, as the saying goes. Right? It's not like there's Marcus Gabriel, right? And then there's also Marcus Gabriel, and uh, uh, um, and he's he's here in the visual cortex, say, right? Or moving. He might he might be moving around. Kant already makes fun of this. He calls this the idea of the spider in the web, right? So there's the web, the brain, and then there's a little spider, right? And and the spider runs around. It's like I want to have a color sensation, and then it goes to the visual cortex, right? And uh, but I want to say something, and then it goes to the Broca area or something. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's no spider in the web. So that's that doesn't work. And they should know because they're all against spiders and webs. Uh, so the, uh, 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 that doesn't work. Then there's another analogy, and here's a particularly funny one. I will conclude with that and be more positive. Um, the UFO God analogy. So uh, let me quote. This is a funny one. If people's claims and beliefs about something, God say, or UFOs, I love the comparison of God to UFOs, can be fully explained as arising from causes having no connection with the thing itself, then this is a reason for discounting them and regarding the thing as illusory. So here now the idea is this, right? Something is an illusion if the best explanation for that thing, right, is not the thing. Well, good luck with that, right? So, so let's say there's consciousness, right? And now you want to say consciousness is an illusion. Yeah? And uh, that would mean, according to this hypothesis, that you explain consciousness without reference to consciousness. Yeah? How do you do that? Yeah. So you could say something like, okay, I will not use the word consciousness. From now on, I will not use the word consciousness. I will just talk about, yeah, well, we happen not to know what the minimal neural correlate of consciousness is, but imagine we found out uh, which parts of our nervous system uh, are a necessary prerequisite for consciousness. We don't know yet, but imagine we knew, and then you would just talk about that. Right? However, does this mean that you're not conscious? If I think about the brain and talk about the brain, does that entail that I'm not conscious? It just means that I'm not using the word consciousness, but other words, right? I might be talking about membranes or hormones and so forth and firing rates. That's what I'm talking about, but it doesn't mean that I'm not conscious. It's not that I can eliminate consciousness by not talking about it, right? I wish, I mean, 
this is, would be a solution to the Brexit problem. Just stop talking about it. Right? <laughs> but, uh, um, but you see, I mean, people tried that one too, right? and uh, it's still there. So things don't go away if you don't talk about them. Right? I mean, many people have tried, but psychology and uh, life experience uh, tells us that our problems don't go away if we stop uh, talking about them. Okay, so that's, that's also not a very helpful one. So part two, now I'm slightly more positive and I will lend them a hand. So I will move into uh, the, the direction of an almost stable view, which is pretty much like illusionism, but almost correct. Okay, so um, fiction and reality first. Okay, so let me tell you what, uh, I will be short on that because this is almost uh, particularly easy to answer. Um, so what's fiction, what's reality? So here's a definition of the real. So what I mean by reality. Okay, something about which you can be wrong is real. So that's the definition of reality that I will be using. Reality is the feature of your thought to be in touch with something that you might also miss. So uh, Theresa May is real because she has all sorts of features that I don't know anything about, right? I don't know the num her number of hairs. There's a determinate number of hairs that uh, Theresa May currently wears on her body, but I, know I don't know that number, nor does she, by the way. No one knows the number of hairs on Theresa May's body, now, even though there's, in the Bible it says at some point all hairs are counted but by God, so God might know them, but that's, that's a tricky issue, but I don't, right? So um, there's, there's a determinate number of uh, uh, planets in our solar system, right? We currently think eight, but this is uh, up for grabs uh, here. Um, so and, uh, that, that means that uh, the number of planets in our solar system is real, okay? So something is real if and only if you can be right or wrong about it, right? So that's the definition of reality. Now, what is fiction? Fiction is not the opposite of reality. Fiction is nothing that you cannot be right or wrong about. I can be right or wrong about Sherlock Holmes. Right? I haven't read enough Sherlock Holmes stories. I'm really very far away from a Sherlock Holmes specialist. Right? So my beliefs about Sherlock Holmes will be wrong. I think he lives in Baker Street, and I think it's number 314. But there I already wouldn't bet my life on, 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 on that address. Right? Uh, I know Mori there's a guy called Moriarty. Right? Uh, and that's about it. I've watched more, actually, Sherlock Holmes TV and movies than read the novels, personally. Uh, uh, but be that as it may, it tells me that Sherlock Holmes is real. However, Sherlock Holmes is fictional. Right? So something can be both fictional and real. So let me just quickly give you a theory of fiction, and then we move, uh, return to consciousness and the self. So I think here's what fictional objects are. Fictional objects uh, are really two kinds of objects that hang together. One object is realized in an artwork, such as a novel, or a symphony, an opera, a poem, a painting, etc. Right? You need an artwork for fictional objects. And the artwork triggers imaginations in you as someone who relates to that artwork. If this happens, you have an aesthetic experience. An aesthetic experience means that you imagine things to be a certain way. For instance, you watch Star Wars, right? And you imagine that the emperor, okay, is still doing something even though you don't currently see him, right? You're presented with something, right? Some weird planet, and, and there's an emperor, but the emperor is currently not in your field. The emperor is not presented. But you imagine that the emperor is doing certain things, right? That is having an aesthetic experience. You read a Sherlock Holmes novel, and you imagine him in a certain way. 
Your Sherlock Holmes and my Sherlock Holmes are never the same object because I will not imagine Sherlock Holmes in the way in which you imagine Sherlock Holmes. So everyone has their private Sherlock Holmes, huh? but there's a public trigger, the Sherlock Holmes story. So fictional objects split into uh, indefinitely many imaginary objects. Huh? But that itself is part of reality because I can study the way in which you imagine Sherlock Holmes. Sociologists, psychologists, etc., can make reasonable assumptions about how people in a certain age and time imagine Sherlock Holmes. Right? People in the 1910s might have imagined Sherlock Holmes in quite a different way from people today. The, uh, right? so if you, the, and we can study that uh, and, uh, and find out that people from a certain region belonging to a certain group, etc., typically imagine Sherlock Holmes roughly like that. Right? Or we can find out that all humans imagine Sherlock Holmes with ten toes. Does anyone imagine him to have seven toes? Right? I mean, so we think, if, if, if you ask yourself how many toes does Sherlock Holmes have, I think it would be reasonable to say, well, ten. Right? The text doesn't say he lost a toe, so, I mean, but you're free to imagine him to have seven. Right? The text th doesn't judge either way, uh, uh, so that's the sense in which he's a fictional object. You can fix his properties in uh, exercises of imagination. Uh, now, here's a proposal then. Human beings might be fictional objects. Right? So uh, uh, I, my sense of self, is related to a bunch of narratives, right? or what's nowadays called identities. I might think of myself as German in some way. People tell me I'm German. Right? I mean, it's in my passport, and then there might be other features that make me German. Uh, right? my, my, my accent and, uh, uh, and the way in which I'm a philosopher and, and so forth. Right? You might think, oh, this is all very German. And uh, 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 what's going on there? Right? Uh, <coughs> uh, don't mention the war. And uh, uh, <coughs> uh, so, uh, you know, like that might be going on. Right? And, and these aspects of human mental life, you might think, are fictional. Right? Human, you might hold a view of the form. Identity in that sense of social identity is a fiction. Right? And there could be a sense in which this is a legitimate hypothesis, namely the following one. Uh, there's a text, right? say my body, may, maybe my brain even, right? and I'm reading this text in a certain way. I am imagining myself to be a certain way. And we are constantly doing this anyhow. We know this, right? I mean, your sense uh, of uh, uh, your spatial temporal position right, uh, uh, is uh, uh, intimately related to the way in which you imagine other people to imagine you, etc. Right? So the, you are constantly imagining yourself right, on the basis of your very existence, because I really exist, but at the same time I imagine myself to be a certain way. However, and this is a limit to the view, so, so now you could do something like this. You could say, okay, so certain parts of a human organism, maybe particularly parts of the brain, are involved in creating this idea of myself, right? We can study what's wrong with people who have a disturbed body image, etc., right? I mean, we can develop uh, medicine and so forth in order to treat uh, uh, certain problems if people feel uncomfortable with, their, with the way in which they imagine themselves or just, you know, uh, prescribe psychotherapy. There are different ways of dealing with that. So now the idea would be, ah, maybe human beings are fictions, right? That's not a crazy view. That is the view of Paul Ricoeur, the, the, uh, the philosopher uh, under whom uh, Emmanuel Macron studied. So arguably, this is uh, the view of uh, le président de la République. Uh, um, uh, but here, bad news for Macron, the view is false. Right? Okay, so uh, uh, um, uh, here's why. Human beings are not artworks. 
human beings are literally socially causally produced because, you know, the behavior of your mother as you grew in her womb, right, uh, determines, among other things, the way in which stem cells turn into other cells in your body, the, what your mother ate, right, how, literally how she moved and so forth and how you reacted to that, right. It's not so clear uh, from which point in your life, right, you turn into an individual that is not identical with your mother, right. We don't know. We don't have a good metaphysics for that. When a process in a womb turns into an individual. There, apparently, I heard this morning, there's a huge project in Southampton in philosophy of pregnancy, which is dealing with this issue. I think it's a fascinating topic, right? Uh, when do you become an individual, right? At some point, you are, right? If, if I shake your hands, we don't become, we don't fuse, right? You're still you, even though we are, uh, you know, even though we are contiguous. And even, even if someone, you know, uh, 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 works on us in such a way that we become fused and can't detach, you know, uh, 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 um, evil, you know, evil surgery, and uh, um, uh, even in that case, I would still be me, right? Even though we, you know, we would be undetached, right? So we don't have a very good answer uh, for that. This would lead into abortion uh, debates uh, and so forth. But that's something we seriously need to discuss. Now, be that as it may, right? Uh, that doesn't turn us into artworks. Humans are artifacts of other humans, right? Uh, 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 currently, you need to have intercourse or something similar, or at least a, 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 a scientific context, right, where you produce uh, uh, new humans. Humans don't grow on trees. Or as Aristotle used to say, men produce men, right? Or anthropos anthropon gena, a human being produces a human being. I think this is still correct under any conditions. They don't, you know, it's not like uh, uh, don't travel to this region. Uh, too many babies are spontaneously generated there, right? I mean, uh, there's, uh, uh, okay, so we are artifacts, but not artworks. Uh, precisely because there are limits to the way in which we can imagine ourselves. We'll get to that. So we are not quite artworks, and this is why this kind of illusionism, even though more attractive, is still false, uh, because we are just not artworks. Okay, um, so let's skip a little uh, a section uh, and uh, come to the truth. Okay, so this was part three uh, together with part two in which I tried to argue that there might be a much more legitimate sense than the one imagined by official illusionists in which we are fictional, right? But we are not fictional because we are not artworks. So you would have to establish that all human beings, insofar as they're human beings, are not animals but artworks. Right? Uh, um, uh, and that, that would be a very contentious claim. In particular, the artworks that I have considered uh, contain incomplete objects. So if you have, uh, you know, the, the letters F-A-U-S-T, right, Faust, uh, that, uh, uh, that's not Faust, that's just a bunch of letters, F-A-U-S-T. And now you start imagining Faust as you go to the theater or the opera or read uh, the text of the play. But that's not the case with me. As you imagine me, right, you don't make me up. I'm still here. So there are constraints on how you can imagine me that are very different from the kinds of constraints you get from artworks. Humans are interestingly similar to artworks, but they're not artworks. Okay? So uh, that is, if we were artworks, then fictionalism or illusionism about ourselves would be a view but not the view intended, because this would not at all mean that consciousness isn't real or any such thing. It would mean it's real, 
but it's a fiction. It would have the logical form of a fiction and be real, okay? So th uh, that would not be a view of the form at all that there's no such thing as consciousness, okay? It would be a different view. I call the view fictionalism, and it's at least not totally incoherent. It hinges on us being or not being artworks, okay? But here's a better view, the, the, now the truth, uh, uh, mental realism, and Geist, okay? So uh, mental realism uh, can be, so that's the view I think is correct, um, uh, can be illustrated with reference to two different kinds of error, okay? So imagine I'm wrong about the mass of fermions in the observable universe, which is very likely, okay? I have actually no idea. I know there is like probably a mass of the fermions, but I don't know what it is, right? I would have to ask my colleagues from physics, like, can you tell me what is the current estimate and so forth, or do we even know exactly, et cetera, and, and so forth. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm wrong about them, about those fermions and their properties, doesn't change them. They, uh, the, the mass of fermions is whatever it is, or the number of planets, or the number of uh, uh, stars or supernovae in a region of our galaxy is what it is, regardless of my true or false beliefs about it. Huh? Now let's call everything that has this property, namely to be what it is regardless of anyone's beliefs, uh, true or false about it, a natural kind. So that's a natural kind. Um, but we are not natural kinds in the following sense because we can change according to our true or false beliefs about ourselves. Let me give you my favorite example for this, um, uh, the delude, uh, deluded tango dancer. Right? So imagine I, uh, you know, I travel to Buenos Aires I see people dancing, and I'm really jealous. I mean, I wish I could dance like them. And uh, I start, and then I dance a little bit, and someone tells me, because they're very nice, you know, uh, that this is, you know, that, oh, I'm a talented tango dancer, and I believe them, right? Maybe I don't know the local friendliness. I completely, you know, I misrepresent that. Germans um, never make jokes. They're never friendly. So if someone tells us, right, you're a good tango dancer, we think it's facts dating, right? Maybe we are like that. It's like, oh, yeah, he told me, you know, uh, and so this is how Germans think about the Finns, but be that as it may. Now, uh, um, um, so we say, oh, uh, you know, he just stated something about me. I'm, I'm Italian. So I start dancing, you know, more like this, and, uh, and everyone's like, he shouldn't dance, right? But, I, but they just told me I'm a good tango dancer, and, and I, I get the flow. It's like, yeah, I want to be a tango dancer. It's this, the whole philosophy business is probably not my thing. I might have you know, this is what I'm born for. Huh? So I, I might stay in Buenos Aires, and my wife calls me, come home. It's like, no, no, I'm a genius tango dancer. And then she's like, but no one wants to dance with you. It's like, yeah, I'm too good, right? Uh, 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 now they are all jealous, right? uh, in my view. So you can see what could happen to me, right? Uh, uh, this might ruin me. I, 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 I might become a homeless German in Buenos Aires, right? Uh, um, uh, uh, Etc. Right? I'm, I hadn't, uh, you know, Germans in Buenos Aires is a difficult topic, but but, uh, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, like uh, 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 so, something like that could happen to me, right? And that's the deluded tango dancer. So I would be wrong about myself. I'm just not a good tango dancer. I'm nowhere near a talent. Way too late. Uh, um, uh, uh, however, I could change into someone, right, who differs from who he is in virtue of his false belief. So human true or false beliefs about ourselves change our status. Let me give you another example. So two extreme figures, 
right? Let's call the one person the religious person. I'm not saying religious people are like that, but they are sometimes portrayed like that by those who are not, right? So, so here's someone, let's call this the religious person, bearing in mind that no one is like that, okay? So this is the religious person according to Dawkins. Yeah? But here's what the religious person according to Dawkins might think about herself. She might think, I have an immortal soul, right? And God is watching what's going on in my immortal soul. Right? So uh, you walk across the street and then you have an evil thought, you know, like this happens to me a lot being a European in England right now, I have lots of evil thoughts about England and, uh, and but then God, you know, uh, is listening to my thoughts, right? So I need to keep them down. It's like, yeah, sorry God, you know, I shouldn't have thought that and, and, and so forth. Uh, um, uh, so that would be, I, I would be very different, right? I would be very different if I thought that I had an immortal soul and that my thought processes and therefore my actions are under constant supervision by God, right? So I would act very differently. I would be very different from someone who's not like that. So that would be one way of being a human being. Yeah? Um, so here's another extreme, the Dawkins scenario. So Dawkins thinks of himself as a sophisticated killer ape walking around to spread his genes. Right? So, so Dawkins will act quite differently. If he orders a pizza, he might think, does this make me attractive? I want to, uh, I want to spread my genes, right? So, um, so he will do everything so that, uh, you know, it will make him attractive. Pizza doesn't make, uh, so he will, uh, you know, become a wine connoisseur, for instance, uh, just so that people think, oh, what a sophisticated killer ape. Uh, he knows all these things about wine and goes to Tuscany and so forth, right? So, but, uh, uh, so his actions will be very different from the actions of the religious person, right? Because the religious person has a different model of what it is to be a human being. Now, call these two models first-order anthropology. A first-order anthropology is a response to the question, what is a human being? One response is a human being is an immortal soul uh, attached to a body tested by a superior being who's interested in our morality. That would be one picture of the human being. Another one, another first-order anthropology tells you human beings are sophisticated killer apes tested by no one because there aren't any transcendent uh, thinkers interested in your thoughts and so forth, right? Plus, there are infinitely many other ways of being human, right? These are just two extreme caricatures of what it will, you know, how you can be human, but there are indefinitely many others, right? The discipline anthropology, among other things, studies those ways of being human. Um, and uh, this is what the humanities and social sciences, among other things, they do other things too, but they specialize in just that, answering the question, how many ways for humans to realize their humanity, that's why they're called the humanities, exist. You can look at them, how they differ across populations, in history, diachronic and synchronically, etc. That's something we, by the way, urgently need. Our public discourse reduces us to caricatures of humans. Humans. The problem with co contemporary public discourse is that, right? So, like a Jordan Peterson kind of figure, right, uh, is utterly uninformed about the humanities, doesn't know the first thing about them, but comes up with very simplified models for uh, 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 how humans are. In this case, for instance, there's a whole fantasy about uh, humanities professors, usually female humanities professors and cultural Marxism and how they are, etc., which is based on no evidence whatsoever. It's not like he asks humanities professors how they are. He imagines humanities professors in a certain way and attaches a description of what it is to be a human being to them. That's a problem in our contemporary public sphere because we work with ridiculous stereotypes, 
right? Male, female, black, white, you name them, right? Uh, these are, um, all of them, ridiculous stereotypes uh, uh, because uh, they haven't been subjected to scientific, and in this case, I mean, humanity-style scrutiny, right? They're just, you know, more or less random beliefs out there, and we need to critically investigate the structure of these belief systems and don't take them at face value, right? That's a problem we currently have. Now, be that as it may, we, here, let's come back to the articulation of the view. So we have all these, you know, indefinitely many first-order anthropologies, but they share something. So now I tell you what the essence of uh, humanity is. Um, in all those instances, right, there's a human being determining herself in light of a conception of herself. Deluded tango dancer, religious person, killer ape, etc., but that structure is invariant. All humans do that. Maybe other animals too, but today I'm only talking about humans. I'm not interested in drawing a distinction between human animals and other animals here. That's not the point I'm making. I'm talking about human animals. This might as well be true about dolphins. We don't know. I don't know if dolphins do dolphin things because they think that they're not lions, right? We don't want to be lions. We are dolphins, right? And then they do dolphin things. And maybe there's a history of dolphin things, right? Maybe, you know, in the dolphin 13th century, right, they, they, uh, they typically jumped out of the water so and so often in, uh, in an hour, right? Uh, and then later this, was, uh, you know, became demo day, right? The, uh, um, we don't know that, right? We haven't studied the history of dolphin behavior as history. Now, but for humans, we can do this, right? Uh, so that's why I'm only talking about humans here. But there's one invariant, right? Humanity itself, and humanity itself doesn't differ across humans. Humans can be different, but humanity can't be different. Right? All humans are literally alike in one respect, adult, healthy, etc. human beings, okay? I'm talking about idealized human beings, not uh, 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 eternally comatose people, right? I'm talking about... Uh, uh, you know, already an idealized type of human being, namely the one interested in answering the kinds of questions that I'm posing here and trying to answer, right? I'm talking about an idealized speech situation, and in this idealized speech situation, the one that we are currently in together, right, you can grasp this structure. Right? And this structure has a German name, Geist. This is what we mean by Geist on the continent, right? It's just the name for it. Uh, it's often translated into English as spirit, but that's a misrepresentation. So the, uh, just take the word, or take my word for it, that the word geist means what I've just told you, right? And uh, I call the view that I sketched neo-existentialism. It's neo-existentialism for two, two reasons. For one thing, it's existentialism without the mistakes. Uh, so that's, that's why it's new, right? Uh, it's the pure truth about human beings. And, uh, and there's also an additional little pop element to it. It's neo as in the matrix. It's neo's existentialism, but that's just, you know, a, a joke on the side. But um, so that's neo-existentialism. I gave you the structure of this. And I think neo-existentialism is the right take on consciousness. And let me finish by, you know, coming back to the topic of consciousness more specifically now. So why would we think that we have conscious states, such as feelings or color sensations and so forth, that we can study scientifically, you know, for instance, in perceptual psychology, etc. We can study uh, um, uh, the reaction of humans to certain stimuli. Uh, uh, we, we know a lot about this, uh, how this works, right? Uh, or the experience of the moment. You know, we know roughly what human beings experience as now. Uh, there's a time attached to what you experience as now. 
Now is not now. Now is a time window. And we can study under which conditions human beings have a certain time window and stuff like that, right? Or what detracts you. That's why magic actually works, because we know how to detract people. We can manipulate them once we know their psychological functioning, unless we tell them, right? Uh, you know, maybe know the, the famous gorilla video. So you see people dancing and you watch this for the first time and, uh, and, a, and a, uh, um, a person in a gorilla costume passes through the dancing group and most people don't see the gorilla. Uh, uh, but there was literally a gorilla. Check out this famous uh, video and there's a book about this. Um, but once you know, of course, there's a gorilla, you'll see the gorilla. Uh, so psychological manipulation works to the extent to which we don't peop tell people right, that we're doing this. Otherwise, psychological experiments won't work. You don't tell people what you're doing with them in an experiment. You need to second order manipulate them. Right? You, don't you can't reveal the truth. Right? That's why Facebook and the Big Five and so forth don't reveal their algorithms, because once they did, you wouldn't believe their magic. Uh, you, uh, uh, you would know how it works, and you would react to it. What? This is what they're doing, right? And you, uh, 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 the, the last book you ordered on Amazon. If you know what they're doing, it's like no. Uh, um, uh, that's why they need to hide it from you, right? Uh, the algorithms and so forth—they're full of biases, racism, and so it's terrible. But uh, um, they don't tell you. It all looks nice and smooth, and it's like they just make a recommendation. You bought one ontology book, here's another ontology book, right? So that's perfectly harmless, right? uh, uh, but it's not. Uh, so it's because it's psychological manipulation. And the interesting question is, how much psychological manipulation do we allow global enterprises to have over citizens, right? Uh, the more we allow them to have this power over us, the more likely it is that we are heading towards uh, Chinese or North Korean cyber dictatorship. That's, uh, that's a serious problem. Um, so uh, somehow there seems to be something we need to discuss here. Okay, so I'm just bringing this up. This will be a different talk. Now, um, but this is why we can study human beings, right? We can study how they function from the outside uh, uh, to, uh, with various disciplines, you know, the natural sciences, humanities, and social sciences. They specialize in different aspects of the human being. But the standpoint from which they operate, Geist, Right? That's what a scientist does. A scientist tries to understand the universe, the human being, and the place of the human being and other animals in the universe. Right? But that is from the standpoint of a human being trying to get hold of his own or her own position. That is what we're doing. We're trying to understand the position of the human being in the cosmos. Yeah. But that is just from that standpoint. And from that standpoint, you can analyze a complex human being into modules. And then you can postulate that there is conscious experience, such as color sensations. But there really aren't color sensations in the sense that your mind has little parts, color sensations and, say, uh, forms, form impressions. Right? So there's a famous problem called the binding problem, which isn't solved uh, uh, in neuroscience and psychology. And I will tell you in a second why it's unsolvable and also why it doesn't exist. But uh, many people think there's a the famous binding problem. And if you, can so if you could solve it, you would probably win the Nobel Prize, depending on how you do it. Right? So some neuroscientists tried. The binding problem roughly goes like this. Uh, how does the brain manage to connect these very different uh, impressions? Right? I mean, so you have acoustic impressions, uh, you know, corners. And, uh, and color hues and so forth, right? And how does it connect them, right? We don't know. It's not like the brain is in a global state and that's the connecting state. Huh? So how does it do it? We don't know. Answer, right, that's a wrong question. 
uh, here's why. Because you have to depart from the fact of full human experience, and now you can analyze full human experience in its necessary and jointly sufficient conditions. So obviously, I couldn't be in the state in which I am right now without having a suitable brain. If you take out my brain, I wouldn't be in the state in which I am trivially. You, you would have significantly damaged me, right? Uh, um, so that I couldn't be in that state. And the state I'm in involves conscious experience. But that doesn't mean that the overall state I'm in is an aggregate of smaller states. If it were, if we had all these tiny little states, mental atoms that you need to connect so as to get a full experience, you would never get a full experience. So otherwise put, in the mental case, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Right? The human mind is a holistic structure, and the ensemble of the natural sciences, humanities, and social sciences, they deal with parts of this holistic structure. The only discipline which gets the whole structure in view is, of course, philosophy, but <laughs> philosophy doesn't thereby know what the parts are. The philosopher is not a specialist for the parts. The philosopher is a specialist for the concept of a part, but not for the parts. Right? It's not like, in my armchair, I figure neuroscience out. I need to ask my colleagues from neuroscience what they're doing, and then they can inform me, right? and then I can spread the rumor without being a neuroscientist. But you know, I need to know as much as possible, of course, because knowledge, scientific knowledge as such, is valuable. But we shouldn't make the terrible mistake of reducing the position of the human being, Geist, right, to the idea that we are a heap of mental atoms or any other heap of atoms. Right? And that was very German because now I'm accusing you of British empiricism. British empiricism was the, uh, is precisely the problematic view that the mind is a bunch of atoms and that you need to glue them together. And it kind of never works. That's why the result of British empiricism was radical skepticism. And the antidote is, of course, Immanuel Kant. But uh, that was just, a, you know, uh, uh, um, but regardless of, uh, uh, you know, these stereotypical uh, jokes, uh, here again is the point. Uh, Human-mindedness uh, is the overall condition that we are jointly in together. Right? And now we can analyze this, but we must never make the mistake, which is called reductionism, and our culture is reductivist, reductivist in nature. It has become reductivist, and that's our problem. It has become atomistic. Uh, we live in what uh, Heidegger has nicely simply called at some point the atom age. The atom age is not just the age of nuclear bombs, etc., but it's the age where we think of reality as consisting of tiny bits, uh, which somehow add up to something larger. Right? But that's apparently not even true in physics. I'm working with a cosmologist, George Ellis, uh, right now about this. He thinks that uh, the universe, even in its earliest stages, is a whole that determines the properties of its parts. The universe, even in its earliest stages, does not consist of uh, random quantum fluctuations in nothingness or something like that because there's already a universe and the uh, overall situation that those entities are in determines their behavior. The universe runs top down. It doesn't run bottom up. Okay? So that is a lesson to take away from the picture that I have been uh, pushing. And I will leave it at that so that we have time for discussion and further clarification. But I hope you get the direction where the thought is going, why I'm not an illusionist, because I think it's an incoherent view, why fictionalism is a slightly better view, but also false because we are not artworks. So instead, we should go for mental realism. But that has significant uh, consequences for the structure of our culture and public sphere, because the software that conversation 
organizations in the public sphere are currently running is reductivist atomism. That's a false view, and that's a real problem. We shouldn't have a, a, a false ideology. Uh, if we have an ideology, at least it should be a true one, such as the one that I'm offering. Okay, uh, <laughs> but let's discuss that. Thanks for your attention. <clears throat>